Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? Can I tell you a secret? That's man, Kevin. What happened? Those kids. Our kids. Why? My whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic. Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do on this show is each week we go through the latest episode of True Detective and we sort of dig through theories and the latest twist. We go through your emails and we usually have an interview with someone from the cast. This week we have the great Michael Gray Eyes, who plays Brett Woodard on the show. Uh, and we will only be spoiling up through season three, episode four, The Hour the Man, written by David Milch. And Nick Pizzolatto, directed by Nick Pizzolatto. I just want to let you guys know off the top of the show, though, that uh, we there's a compelling theory floating around that I think is somewhere between a spoiler and not. So we decided to do kind of what we did with Sharp Objects, with like book knowledge from Sharp Objects. If you listen to that miniseries that we did, which is put conversation about this theory at the end of the episode. So you can just, there'll be an audio cue for you to leave and you can decide for yourself whether or not you want to like, interact with this particular theory. So that is coming up at the end of the episode, as well as that interview with Brett Woodard. But before we do that, we want to get to some of your emails. Um, the first, and of course, obviously most important email is our man on the street, our woman on the street in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, responded to our request for the best burger in Arkansas. Are you ready, Richard? 
Oh, I'm always ready for a burger, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so this is from Peyton, and Peyton says the best burger in Fayetteville, Arkansas, is a place called Hugo's, which was actually featured in episode two, where 1990s Wayne met, uh, you know, uh, the John Tenney character and learned a bit about Julie's, like the whole print, the whole fingerprint scene and all of that. So, uh, and, and she said that Marshall Ali's grill and chill at the Devil's Den being a close second. So there you go. If you, if you're in Fayetteville, Arkansas and you need a burger, you want to go to Hugo's, hopefully we will not ruin the burger business at Hugo's just by saying that on this podcast. If you're on the uh, inevitable True Detective Season 3 location tour. Right, right, right. Yes. Which yes. I'm sure people are going to want to do. <laughs> Let's go to the cave! <laughs> um, and then we've got a couple other theories. One person, uh, Lauren, wrote in to really wanted to zero in on who Julie's real dad might be. This is something we might touch on this episode, but like, if we want to believe... Tom's uh mom that Tom is Purcell is not the real father of Julie Purcell then we need to ask some questions about who Julie's real dad might be uh is it someone that Lucy worked with at the bar is it someone that Lucy worked with at Hoyt Foods like who who would Lucy be running around with that might be Julie's real father um but what Lauren says is it ain't scoot so uh we'll we'll see if we agree with Lauren on that front uh do you have any Julie dad theory, Julie daddy theories. Well, I mean the Hoyt thing with the foot, the bag in hidden away like that. I feel like that, like, I, I feel like, you know, in a series that is partly about predatory men, like, wouldn't it make sense that some like more powerful person at, at her place of work and then just, she left and she kind of brushed off. It's like, well, I make more tips at the restaurant. Like maybe there was something more involved there. Yeah. So Julie from Vancouver also wrote in about this same topic and, um, she pointed out that in the documentary 2015 uh, interaction, the director Eliza says what happened with Julie and her father rather than Julie and Tom. Uh, and Julie from Vancouver writes, I think it's because Tom isn't Julie's father, which they've alluded to already. So I don't think something happened between Julie and Tom. I think she came back to confront her real father or her real father went after her. Who could her father be? I feel like it has to be someone we've met already. I think it's someone in law enforcement. I think that's who's been messing with the case. There've been multiple mentions of officers showing up to question people and that information not being shared or tips not being followed up on. My guess is the higher up cop who released information in the press conference. I think it's less likely, but still possible. One of the prosecutors reopening the case uh, or Roland West. Okay. I'm I'm saying I don't want it to be Steven Dorff. That's the only thing that I don't care. I care about. I don't want it to be Roland, but like the attorney general is not the worst theory I've ever heard. Um, Kent, he's doing some terrible things. I think in this episode, we might get some compelling uh, question marks around the idea of it being cousin Dan, which just adds a nice little like extra incest twist to the whole thing so why not um why not do that um and then there's the the last thing that i'm going to email i'm going to read i'm going to save for that sort of spoiler section where you do at the end so those are so there's some great emails we got we got a whole bunch of great emails so thank you keep sending them in still watching pod at gmail.com and the last thing i'm gonna say before we do our little like beat by beat thing is that this week we're gonna try to keep our heads straight with what's going on by instead of bouncing back and forth in time, we're going to take the 1980, the 1990 and the 2015 and do them sort of one by one. Um, you know, cause yeah, the, the main show is like, you know, like 
kind of confusing enough with the fractured timelines. Yeah. For a recap show, maybe we could try to streamline that. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to start, uh, where else in 1980, where everyone's hair is a little higher and more voluminous, uh, with this whole church plot line. What do you think of this, of this church storyline, uh, that runs through the episode, Richard? Well, I mean, look, if you're telling a story about, you know, malfeasance done toward kids perhaps perhaps by some sort of institutional sinister power uh can you really not talk about the catholic church right. Fair at enough. this point uh, Fair I mean, no real offense meant to catholic listeners out there but like come on like i'm from boston i grew up right near the archdiocese like that is now i mean you know that that is a part of catholic culture honestly so or at least the cler- clerical culture so uh yeah i mean it, it, it was kind of i felt kind of inevitable that we'd get there at some point yeah, so we, you know, we, we find out a few, I think the most important clue, I guess, that we get from the priest, uh, and the priest also being a suspect, of course, um, is this idea of an ant that Julie is excited about seeing an ant. And we see a, a note card on the, on the cork board later, the investigation cork board that says new ant question mark. So, uh, Julie doesn't, Julie and Will don't have an ant. So who right. is this woman? Is she the same white woman that has been mentioned a couple times, like lurking around the neighborhood and stuff like that? So. Right. And so this is, I think, this episode, interesting, you know, maybe it's a short-lived theory. My sort of Amelia theory about she's the one who did it because she wanted fodder for her book kind of starts to break down in this episode because, you know, the ant thing is interesting because you're like, well, that could be Amelia. It could be the other woman. But we see in a, another scene – um, in the 1980 section when they go to talk to this old lady who makes the dolls for the church. Right. Where he's like, was he good looking, not ugly? She's like, well, I mean, he was black. And so I think that there would be such a distinction made by people in this community if a black woman said, I'm, oh no, but, but no, they didn't see the aunt, did they? Or did he meet her? The priest didn't. There's oh, been like a. Okay, so never mind then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it could be someone that they call an aunt and I could see them like giving Amelia that, that, you know. And maybe she just mentioned my aunt blank. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, okay. So that the Amelia theory survives that. Right. I don't think it survives some stuff, um, as well, uh, later in the episode. <laughs> But, um, that whole, that whole Patty Faber interaction, the woman who makes the cornhus dolls, I really enjoyed because, like, there's this whole lead up to it. You know, the pri- the priest calls her a dear good woman. Um, you know, Hayes says sort of skeptically and ironically, like, can't wait to meet Patty Faber, a dear good woman. And then she's just like, she's another, like, like the farmer, but a little more the farmer we met last week, just like, you know, this, this racism that, that Wayne has to deal with all the time where he's like, anything else you could tell us about the guy's face? Was he like ugly? handsome she's like i don't know he was black that's all i got like he lives i assume he lives over where you people live across the tracks you know all this sort of stuff and then she just like gives this look to him as he leaves her house which is just like this i think the actress really nailed this like racist white woman trying not to look racist but also being very scared without having any real reason to be scared uh look on her face it's really uh, a beautiful scene there of discussing racism so yeah yeah you know and and it's the show being both subtle and overt you know with with these kind of themes like i think that this is not it the the chief theme of this season isn't necessarily a black police officer in a bigoted community trying to you know rescue two white children or or 
you know, avenge one white children child and rescue another. Um, but it's definitely, a, it has to be part of the landscape. You know, it, it has to be part of the fabric of the world and of the show. So I think that scenes like this where maybe it's a little bit on the nose, I, but I still, I, I appreciate that they're not forgetting that, you know? Yeah, well, we I think we mentioned before that um, Mahershala Ali's character, Wayne, was supposed to be, um, was not written as black. And yeah. that Mahershala Ali had to, like, convince Nick Pizzolatto to cast him. And so all of this stuff has been sort of seeded back in. But it, I mean, it all works. It doesn't seem, like, super overt. And we should, we should also mention that um, this episode and a few other episodes, or at least, like, parts of other episodes, were co-written by David Milch this season. Usually, Nick Pizzolatto has all the writing credits on a season of True Detective. David Milch of um, Deadwood fame was brought into, you know, their conflicting uh, reports as to why David Milch was brought in. David Milch was brought in because season two wasn't very good. David Milch was brought in because Nick Pizzolatto asked for help. Um, who knows, like, exactly why he's there. Um, always welcome in my mind because, like, uh, if anything, Deadwood is known for its absolutely exquisite dialogue. And so, you know, any, any sort of, like, beautiful turns of Phrases. I mean, True Detective obviously already had a reputation for beautiful dialogue, but you know, there's a possibility that there are some Milchian turns of phrases in here. And we should also mention that David Milch had this like, uh, relate this like, I think like a mentorship, mentor menteeship or something like that, some connection to Robert Penn Warren. So all the Robert Penn Warren poems we saw earlier this season might have been like a Milchian kind of touch, even though they seem Pizzolatoian as well. So yeah, you can hear the Milch in this episode though. Yeah. Like I think like in, in the dinner scene between Amelia and Wayne. Yeah. Uh, in the fight scene between Amelia and Wayne in the, in the 1990 storyline. Um, just these kind of curly cue kind of, th- you know, bits that like True Detective has had in the past, but they have a kind of extra sort of ornateness to them in this episode, which I don't mind. I mean, I, I'm somebody who like has tried several times to watch Deadwood and I just do not speak that show's language. Like I really don't understand what they're saying <laughs> most of the time. And so I just think that my brain has a block for it. Like John from Cincinnati, that, that another show that was like, I, I, I had no idea what was going on in the show. <laughs> um, was luck him too? Uh, the horse racing he, show. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Again, like, so, so I don't spill, I don't speak, <laughs> I don't speak Milchian, but uh-huh. here when it's blended with Pizzolatto, like, I can appreciate his high style without getting lost, which, you know, so I appreciated the, the blend. Um, yeah. So I, I agree with you that, that, um, he's got that extra pepper. There's, a, there's, there's this, I don't want to, I don't even want to call it vulgarity, like maybe carnality. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of talk of fucking in this episode. Right. And so like, yeah. especially between Wayne and Amelia. And so like, um, that is something that Milch does really well. You're so right to call it out. This, this, uh, you know, this carnality that is not vulgar, it is like human and grounded in like, uh, you know, feelings that we all recognize. And that's something that Milch is perfect at. So there we go. Um, we, we get, um, Hayes and West following up on this, like following the trail of this man with a, with a dead eye, um, who bought a whole bunch of Cornhusk dolls. And that idea of like a man with a dead eye or a man with a scar matches up with that whole report we learned about earlier, where just like a white woman and a man with a scar were like lurking around 
doing things. Uh, so, you know, they might be on the right track here. Um, and as we should, we should mention really quickly as they go into Davis Junction, uh, which I guess is the, is the black section of this, of this area. Um, they drive past a marquee that says, you do not know the day nor the hour, um, which is gives this, um, this episode, it's titled The Hour of the Day. Um, I think I called it The Hour of the Man earlier by accident. Um, anyway, which is a, which is a Bible quote from Matthew. And it just sort of means like, you don't know when Jesus is coming. So keep an eye out for him. Do you have any like thoughts on what, um, I, I was thinking of cometh the hour, cometh the man, but it's, you do not know the day or the hour. Do you have any thoughts on that, Richard? And what, how that might apply to this story? Um, I mean, I'm pretty bad with like religious illusion, to be honest, even though I've gone to Catholic school and stuff. But like, you know, I think it, 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 you know, we were using the word hour and last episode, uh, Wayne and Amelia had this kind of conversation about naming time and all that stuff. So, so there's something about, and, and all the memory stuff is coming to place. So there's something about like, uh, presence you know and 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 your sense of tense you know um that 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 i think is maybe being alluded to there but i I could be totally wrong oh i like that um i do know we have at least one listener uh who who is like super fluent in in studying the bible who wrote in a, a lovely email to us about um i had mentioned last week that tom's uh prayer sounded a little like slightly extreme in its language last last week and this listener pointed out to me that it is actually fairly standard sort of like 12 steppy language and so um you know i i take that correction well and and if they if that listener has any thoughts on on this quote i would really welcome them mm-hmm. um yeah so we're so we're following the track through a liquor store there's great dialogue throughout this episode you know, Wayne's like, we're going to a liquor store that to look for a black suspect. That's racist. And, and Roland's like, it's one of three businesses in this town. Like, that's where we're going to start. And then, um, and then we have this really explosive interaction at the trailer park, um, which sort of presages the explosive racially charged interaction that we have at the end of this episode, um, between this, you know, man with the dead eye, uh, Roland, Wayne, and all the people who live in the trailer park. And like, what's interesting about the scene, you know, set in 19, as it is in 1980, uh, is it reminds me so much of like a lot of what we've seen, um, lately with, you know, um, black people across the country or, or, you know, anyone who feels sort of targeted across the country using their cell phones as like a defense mechanism against mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, police aggression, you know, this guy doesn't have that. So he's like calls all the people in his community to be like, watch these people. They're trying to pin something on me. Keep a watchful eye. What did you think of, of this scene? Yeah. I mean, it was tense and I think it's just, you know, it, it it's, it's an interesting look at, um, another community within this broader town where so much of the story is focused on, you know, well, he was, I mean, he says like, must be white kids if it was in the newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, so, so here are the, here are these members of this town, the, uh, or, or, you know, nearby town, broader community, whatever, who, you know, are ever present and observing of what's going on and, uh, you know, know enough to see this car coming in and, and, and knowing that it's police and knowing it's bad. And yet I think, well, either it's a, it's a fault of the show that they're, that these, that these characters are not more central to the, to the, to the, to the world building or deliberate, you know, where it's like, there's, there are whole other narratives happening over here that like people are just not paying attention to, uh, even Wayne. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think in terms of just, just fleshing out, 
what this place is and, and, and what tensions animate it. Um, I think this is a kind of, kind of a crucial scene, you know, if, 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 if the, the season's going to be partly or indirectly or whatever about, um, the, the, un, the uneasy dynamic of race in, in, in this part of the country and any part of this country, um, you know, this is the kind of vital thing, you know, we have to see. And, and it was hap, you know, it was happening long before, um, the current, uh, protest movements um that you know have gotten so much attention absolutely of course and like this this scene is so telling for wayne's character in terms of you know like he gets confronted by this man um whitehead is the name of this man and he he is confronted by this man uh who says like how can you wear this badge and and wayne has this great retort which is like it's got a little clip on it like that's a great little zinger but this scene highlights the way in which wayne as a cop is rejected by this black community, right? And then the way Wayne as a black man is rejected by the, by the cop community by and large, uh, like Roland being an exception. Uh, you know, it like Wayne just doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a place, you yeah. know? And so, um, yeah, that's really underlined in this interaction. I think we do get an important detail, which, you know, the, you know, this guy who says he's innocent, he, he points out that like, a lot of black men in the area have like scars and missing eyes and missing limbs and missing digits because of uh, both farm work. And he mentions uh, the killing line at the chicken plant. So he mentions Hoyt farms sort of basically yeah. in that scene. So, so we're getting a picture that this, this industry, much like the hog processing plant in sharp objects looms large over the economy of right. this town, you know? And so what that does is to still, the suspect's pool to, you know, because you can be like, oh, wait, like, uh, Hoyt, the, the bag and the chicken plant. And it's like, right. But like a lot of people work there. Right. Exactly. Like many people in the town. And so when you have single industry or, you know, kind of mono industry towns like that, like, um, it's not that people are indistinct because they all work at the same place, but it just sort of, you know, it sort of muddies the waters of trying to find one person. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And so then we hop from that, from like, you know, their car gets wrecked. Um, Wayne asks Roland if they could just like call it like, I forget what he says, but Roland's response is, oh, we're not going with irate Negroes, which is just like, once again, kind of beautifully delivered by Stephen Dorff. Like, I just, I admire everything that Dorff does in this episode and generally in this show. He's fantastic, as is Marshall, obviously. Um, and speaking of which, we're going to, we're going to do a little, 
one two punch of like love stories because you know though it's a passing thing in this episode we see Roland eyeballing one of the women who goes to this church a prisoner there she's played by an actress Jodie Balfour who uh w- was great in my opinion as Jackie Kennedy on season 2 of The Crown um mm-hmm. and like i'm just saying Jodie Balfour doesn't show up if, for one scene to walk by so probably not yeah we're probably going to see this woman that Roland has his eye on again um and then we get Wayne and Amelia's on their first date and this is where you said you really felt like the Milchian uh pepper coming yeah, through i mean it just it has this kind of like glide to it and it's sort of um you know they're talking cute you know like i like it's almost mammity in a way too which was which milch and mammon are you know share a lot of dna um but it's not it's not kind of it doesn't feel too presentational it does feel like two smart people talking uh real people um and i just love the way that scene kind of shifts and undulates and it's not exactly they're sort of negotiating a power dynamic i think they're just they're, they're two relatively reserved people who are trying to say at a nice restaurant in a sort of like eager, but also, um, kind of high minded way as possible that like, I'm really into you. Yeah. I love you know? that. But also uh, you, you mentioned the undulations. And I think that's a really good word. I feel like it shifts continually shifts in the way that first dates often do between like, we're both on the same page and we're interested in each other to like, awkwardness and oh did i misjudge this and oh shit am i the only one into this you know what i mean like i feel like we see that dynamic which just feels so true even though i don't think any of us has ever talked about like murder necessarily on our first date but i don't i mean mean, you know look you don't i mean i'm not gonna go into my personal life but all right richard whatever you did to get ben barnes i approve that's all i have to say um but killed his girlfriend We had to talk about it at the, on the day. Um, but there's a great, mo- a great moment of comedy where like Wayne says this thing about like fucking and murdering kids like in front of the waitress. And that's like maybe the most like deeply awkward well, part. Yeah, of the and what he says is a lot of these people think there's affection even up to the fucking and killing them part, which is such a blunt way to put yeah. that, you know, and. I think I I just think that there I think we see especially in this episode probably maybe it, like you mentioned the Milchy kind of carnality and all that is that like there has to be some roughness in Wayne because of his experience in Vietnam you know that where like like there has to be where uh, moments where he just kind of sees humanity as this very base thing yeah and even though now he's sort of gentler and more haunted and you know he's a he's a smart guy and likes to talk to Amelia about philosophical things uh, in his sort of you know laconic way like there is something else kind of in him you know whether it's in threatening people with prison rape or sort of letting slide the kind of crudest way possible to talk about this case uh, you know at on a date yeah um i think that's a really good point and i think obviously like the the 2015 storyline bears up um that interpretation of uh, you know like let's not forget his vet status um and there's um the other thing, you know, maybe like I'm not ready to like put your Amelia theory to bed entirely because I'm so enamored of it. And even if we might talk about things at the end of this episode that seem to belie it, I just want to say if we want to keep the Amelia theory on the table, this idea throughout comes up again throughout this episode, as we've seen before, that she uses sex as a distraction, like in the mm-hmm. scene when she's talking to him, um, he asks about her family and then she like – 
basically pivots to sex pretty quickly from there and doesn't answer him about her family. Um, and then she does it again later when they're fighting yeah. in 1990, you know, and her so. saying, I used to be a mess. Like we're, we're just getting these little snippets that like, she is, she's not, I mean, she talked about the hotel thing and pretending to be another person, but the, these idea and the, and the black Panther stuff out in California. Um, not that there was anything bad about being part of the black Panthers. But I just, I just mean that like she, she has a past and that she wasn't always this kind of like ethereal school teacher. Um, this earthy kind of, you know, warm presence. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm curious. I just don't think they'd be dropping that for no reason. But, you know, this is also a show that just likes to kind of em- embellish its style. You know, it, it likes to kind of pad out its world, even if not everything is directly causal or consequential to the murder at hand. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, uh- if we want to see Amelia as someone who's trying to lead the case from like the back seat, you know, she says all this leading stuff to him, like, which could be an investigative mind at work, or it could be her wanting to point him to certain conclusions. So she says, like, doesn't the way the bodies pose like denote affection? Don't you think is something that she says, which is just classic leading, like to end something with like, don't you think like, I know you would have come up with this on your own, but I'm just going to like plant the seed for you sort of thing. So, um, so that is Amelia Wayne's first date. Uh, and it all runs from there. Um, on the, on the like less cheery love angle, we get, you know, Tom, a complete wreck at at the, bar where Lucy works. Um, he's been beat up and he's basically gone there to confront her boss who I guess Lucy was having an affair with according to Tom. The boss does not seem to deny it in any way. Um, and then the boss called Roland to come pick Tom up. And this, if you know, this feels like an answer to questions we had last week about like, what is the connection between Tom and Roland? And you know, what, what winds up happening is Roland picks Tom up, you know, gets him in the car and then basically like offers Tom a place to sleep on his couch um, you know, and so this might be when Tom says, like, you pulled me out of that, that hole 10 years ago, like, this might be the moment that he's talking about, like, this is rock bottom for him. And it's all up from here, or there's further to fall and Roland will be there for him uh, yeah. again, you know, and this is the first mention in this episode of of three mentions uh, of of people with suicidal ideation. Um, he says, I just want to die later. Um maybe Gummer's character, uh, Lucy, per- yeah. Lucy says, you know, I have a little 38 snub nose or whatever in my purse. And it's just, I need that last little bit of courage. And then in the 2015 segment, we see, you know, Wayne sitting on the, with the gun on the desk thinking, maybe I don't want to live without my wife. So there are a lot of people, there are three people in this episode who have reached some, perhaps some sort of brink and yet don't quite cross it. At least not yet. Well, yeah, and it's like, it's like Tom, it feels like Tom comes back from that edge and we find out that Lucy doesn't because we find out in this episode that she died of an overdose in Las Vegas. So it wasn't yeah. like she died peacefully in her sleep. Like she OD'd. She never comes out of that hole. You know what I mean? And Tom yeah. maybe did as of 1990 did. We don't know if he'll stay that way because there's some indication that stuff happened. More shit went down for him in 1990 possibly. But, um, and then there's also this, this interaction where Tom, like Tom drops the N word, the N bomb. Mm-hmm. And like genuinely from my view, like seems remorseful for using it. And like this interaction between Roland and Tom, I thought was really interesting because like 99% of the people that we met in Fayetteville, like, um, or in Arkansas, I would not believe them if they like apologize for using the N word. And like Tom, I actually genuinely do. And I don't know if that's just down to Scoot's performance or what, but, um, 
It's- well, yeah, I mean, I think it's also saying that, like, a lot of the people, if not all of the white people in, in this town or this part of the country, this part, this part of Arkansas, uh, may have been steeped in that language and know that it's, you know, even if they don't feel, uh, you know, racist in their hearts, like it, it's still a part of their worldview, you know, um, and in a time of despair or anger, it's the cruelest thing they can hurl out, you know, and, and, um, I think there's obviously remorse, uh, on Tom's part, uh, less so. I, I mean, I think we can infer on Lucy's when she, you know, hurls some stuff at Amelia. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There was a little small part of me that felt that that scene drunk in the car. Well, A, I've seen like the grieving parent a lot in the killing and so many other shows that I'm a little kind of sick of the, the sort of rhythms of that, but also like maybe it's a little bit Pizzolatto and I guess by extension Milch kind of exonerating themselves from some other racially charged language that's mm. thrown around in the show. Yeah. Know? It could be. Yeah, that that's sort of like, I mean, Deadwood is entirely that, right? Deadwood has yeah. more racial epithets than you've ever heard in your entire life. Racial, Like, I learned 200 new racial epithets from Deadwood yeah. that I never heard in my life. But at the same time, like, the best characters in the show have progressive attitudes towards race. Yeah. So it's like, you're having your cake and eating it too, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't say racially charged. They're racist words. They're yeah. outright racist words. Oh, yeah, words. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's Skip straight to Lucy then, speaking of racist words and her interaction with Amelia, which is like Mamie Gummer doing some great work here. Probably uh, her last episode, I would bet. I would guess. Um, you know, she, she says, uh, you know, she is the soul of a whore is sort of like how she opens and it just goes mm-hmm. from there. Um, that she, sounds like Milch. <laughs> it's true. She says, uh, the children should laugh, uh, is something that she says to Amelia, which is, uh, either her quoting the ransom note, uh, or just unconsciously using the same language as the ransom note. Um, and then she says this thing, like that you mentioned that she wished she had the courage to kill herself. Where's that last bit of courage? She goes, the line reading that Mamie Gummer here does when she goes, where's that courage come from? Ooh, beautiful. Excellent. Yeah. Um, almost as good as everything you touch turns to shit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, yeah. And then she says terrible things to Amelia. She calls her Picnini. She says, you're snooty cunt. And I wrote like woof in all yeah. caps in the show notes. Cause I was just like, really? Um, and, you know, and then you just get this tight on Amelia's face as she walks out and deals with that. So what did you think of like possibly Mamie Gummer's last scene? Yeah, I think, I think it's a really, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 as you know, a lot of grieving parents stuff is that my daughter in there, like it, it, <laughs> it, that, that, that sort of scene or that sort of tone can get, can a risk, an actor can risk emoting, you know, um, being a little big, but, um, I think she, I think she keeps it in, in check. Um, and you know, I think it's, I don't know. It's an interesting Amelia scene too. I mean, obviously Lucy has the kind of big explosive stuff to do, but, Amelia's a cool customer. Yeah. You know, and she's sitting there. Well, but she's not as cool as she thinks he is because Lucy picks right up on it, you know, but like she's, I don't think she gives a shit about that woman. Like she's just, she's just there to sort of insinuate herself yet again in this because she likes it, you know, and maybe there is some empathy for it, but like, uh, I, her, 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 her motive was on her list of motives. I think comforting Lucy in any way was pretty low. 
yeah, I'm going to take, I, I'm going to take these, you know, possessions, not out of the goodness of my heart, but because I want to like get info from her or encourage her to talk to Wayne. She's kind of like triggering possessions. Yeah. That she's maybe not even ready to look at and that she didn't necessarily even know existed. Yeah. I mean, there's a plate that says, I love mom on it. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like the, the lady's kids, well, one died and one went missing like not that long ago. Like maybe wait. Yeah, absolutely. But she couldn't wait because she had to get, you know, she had to be in the mix. That's Amelia. Yeah. So yeah, she's not a complete, you know, like this is when she talks about like playing different characters, uh, you know, to Wayne in episode two or whatever. This is a character she's playing. The concerned school teacher is a character for Amelia is how I feel about it. So, um, and then we get to, let's do the whole Kenny Burns thing real quick. Like Kenny Burns, one of the three teens in the purple VW, his prints kicked on the bike. Uh, we already saw him riding that bike, so we're not that surprised. But that's an excuse enough for, you know, uh, Weston Hayes to pull him into interrogation. Um, Wayne says some like truly terrible things about prison rape again to him. Uh, and we see the other two boys are also in, t- in interrogation before uh, the detectives get called away. Anything you want to say about this scene? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because Wayne does say at another point in the episode that they're like fairly convinced that the person is connected to that church somehow. And like, we don't know, we don't, we assume with his like, you know, black Sabbath shirts and everything that Kenny is not a devout church goer or whatever. Right. So like, I don't, I kind of wonder like, how much Wayne really believes and Roland even really believes that these kids are involved. But like, I guess they just have to follow everything. And I think it was more to scare him to get him to say anything else that he knew about, you know, what he saw. I don't, I don't think that I really don't think that Wayne thinks he did it. Right. I, I mean, I, these, we talked about, um, like the true crime, the the real crime associations with these three, but I think in every way they're a red herring for this story. That's how I feel about them. Yeah. You know, I could be wrong. And then we get to the, you know, the final act of 1980, which is um, the Brett Woodard interaction. We see him talking to these girls. Uh, he wants like to, you know, he asked them for their soda cans so he can recycle them. He was warned not to talk to kids and that if anyone saw him, you know, it'd be held to pay. So this like, you know, asshole who's watching him who threatened him last time rounds up the troops and like starts hounding him down the street in this like very, uh, you know, pulse pounding sort of, you know, like, like Brett does not hesitate, takes off his shoes and just like runs like yeah, in a way like, that like Tom Cruise, a mission impossible, <laughs> just like very determined running. It was so good. Cause I'm like, that's what I always want people to do when they're getting like chased down the street is I'm like, get off the road. Why are you running straight down the road? He just like veers off, goes in the grass. And we find out sort of what that duffel bag was full of, which is guns, uh, not, not a body. He, he knows they're going to intercept him at the house and he kind of almost wants them to. Yeah. It seems like he's just spoiling for a fight. And so like, which, which is like understandable giving every everything that he's been through right so we see him rig a bomb we see him get his guns ready he's got a tattered american flag as his like window covering and these assholes all circle the house and they're calling him out and west and hayes roll up this is the end of the episode we're doing in the middle of our episode i apologize and west and hayes roll up and then it goes cuts to black as like the the lead bully is like kicking down the door and we hear an explosion sound so what does it say on the mine it's like face toward enemy or yeah, whatever yeah you know, yeah just, so, I, that could be the name of the episode but yeah um it's, it's a you know there's got to be one big action sequence in in true true detective like there was in the first season with that like extended um take and then yeah there was something in season two i don't remember but um there's a big shootout with like all yeah, of the detectives yeah that's right um you know and i i would guess that we're not just gonna 
end with I mean, the, we're going to see the, the the follow up of past that explosion. Um, I would I would think something we know and some you know we'll we'll you know it's really pronounced this time in the 1990 is that Roland West got shot at some point in 1980 and he's yeah. got a he's got a terrible limp in this episode. So uh, you know just. That's the thing to keep in mind. This feels like a good point to go to our interview with Brett Leonard. Hi, Joanna. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm great. Very excited to do this with you. Oh, I'm so I'm so appreciative of your, of your time. I'm I think your performance on the show is amazing. I'm so happy to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, one of, I think, the most compelling scenes of the entire show so far has been that interrogation room scene that you have a little early on this season. I was wondering if you could talk about the energy that you brought to that scene and, and what that was like to shoot. Uh, yeah, that was that was extraordinary for me. Uh, you know, coming back and just trying to find yourself, you know, sadly for, for, for my character, he never does. He never does sort of really find himself. But that scene in particular... Even Jeremy, the our, you know the director for that episode, he said this is like one of my favorite scenes in the whole season. You have such a rich CV. You've done so much good work, but I'm wondering the way you talk about the Woodard character. Is there something in this character, in the nuance and the layers, that you haven't had an opportunity to play in the past? Um, definitely. I think. I think what uh, you know, there was actually a comment on. Um, I think it was Instagram. Somebody somebody wrote uh, about about the scene, and they actually said something incredibly nuanced about um, how how Woodard fits inside the inside the show, but also um, fits inside the kind of writing um, and representation that that exists in Hollywood for Indigenous characters. And she said, "What's what's beautiful about about um, the scene and the character is that." He exists, you know, with a kind of full dimensionality. The, the fact of his nativeness is sort of a background issue to his humanity. Like we don't see native characters as often as we should in, in, our, in our media. And, and the sort of the, the complexity and nuance of the writing uh, normalized him. And, it's, and in, in a weird way, it, uh, it decentralized his, his uh, nativeness and just... We just cared about him as a person. Um, so I thought that was a really wonderful comment uh, because, again, you know, the the writing and, you know, the work that I was, uh, you know, trying to achieve, you know, with Mahershala and Stephen, um, it, every time we did the scene, and we did the scene a lot, um, it just kept deepening. And then his native identity is such a key part of what happens next with the townspeople who are bullying him, who are ostracizing him. So how do you as a performer sort of calibrate wanting to decentralize that native identity to make that the background of his character and then also engage in this very real racial persecution that's part of his story? Right, right. Uh, I think I think with contemporary characters, contemporary uh, native characters, and really, char- you know, any 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 one from a community of color, you know, uh, our presence inside these narratives often uh, invites uh, an examination of uh, race, the ostracizing or othering of our of our communities. Uh, 
And what I think Nick did uh, so beautifully with um, with Woodard and and Hayes is is that he sort of created this um, this dialogue, a dialogue almost like insiders, like an, an inside dialogue between two people who've experienced um, you know the systemic kind of racism that you're talking about, um, the sort of uh, societal um, pressures and isolations. Uh, that we experience as, as uh, you know, marginalized, so-called marginalized communities. Uh, and, and in fact, it kind of uh, en- enriches how, how characters can, can be explored. You know, uh, very often, and in, in the case of Woodard, um, the examination of violence in our society um, towards, uh, you know, our communities is omnipresent. It's, it's been ongoing. Uh, I think, I think the, the incident in, in um, DC just recently sort of helps clarify that for people who may not be aware of it. Uh, so, so in a, in a really striking way, um, when, when our characters are introduced inside these kinds of narratives in, inside these stories, um, it gives, it gives audiences a chance to immerse themselves in our lived experience. I did want to ask you about that because the first time I watched this episode, it was actually before the incident in DC with Nathan Phillips and the Covington High kids. And the Brett Woodard story is so upsetting to watch regardless, but then to watch it in light of the conversation, the national conversation we're having around what happened to Nathan Phillips, it it just, it hits even harder for me, at least as a viewer. And I'm just wondering what you're hoping everyone who's following that national conversation will get out of watching this episode and what happens to Woodard in it. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's, it's, that's a complex question. Um, Thank you. I think, I think one of the things that I face as as an artist, um, and I've been in the industry a long time is uh, that I have a very important role. Um, because of the issues of erasure uh, within within our media, within within history, the, the framing of of our experience um, as Indigenous people, we are excluded uh, from conversations. Our characters are absent uh, from narratives, specifically contemporary ones. And so, uh, as an actor, I'm very cognizant. And proud of the fact that I've, you know, I, I represent my communities, and um, you know the, the way I look, uh, you know how I'm cast, often brings um, our 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 presence, you know, our our survival um, front and center. Uh, and I think I think watching what what's happened, what happened, you know, this past weekend. Um, clarifies in a really ugly way um, how this erasure continues to affect us. Uh, you know, I know, I know. For example, Savannah Guthrie brought one of the boys from from that school onto her program, and my response, of course, immediately was uh, like, "Wow, wow!" They actually erased Nate's experience, um, the experience of of a community that he represented. Um, an elder, you know, again, so, you know, on, on multiple levels, ageist, racist, however you wanted to describe it. Um, 
we were removed from the conversation. We were removed from the conversation about what happened. So in light of that, um, I feel doubly important, like doubly committed uh, to uh, continuing to represent, continuing to be part of, of these narratives, uh, you know, sort of reinforcing this idea for ourselves. And uh, we've never we've never gone away. I wanted to ask you, you know, a little more broadly, what you what you think Nick um, is trying to say in the season of True Detective about, I mean, PTSD is a thing that exists both for Mahershala's character and for yourself and for a number of other men in this, in this time that we're exploring in the show. And I'm wondering, you know, for the way in which PTSD manifests with Woodard and with what you have to convey, um, you know, what, maybe what some of the research that you did or some of the thoughts that you had around that particular strain. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate actually to have played soldiers, um, pre- uh, previous to, you know, uh, this season. Um, and I've done a lot of research, uh, you know, I think people may not be aware, but, um, indigenous communities, both in Canada and, and in the United States, um, the number of, of, uh, I guess the percentage of our people that serve is extremely high. Like it's a very, very high, uh, sort of percentage of, of people who serve. So PTSD, um, has manifested itself in our communities in, in a number of ways. So I think, I think my research, um, unfortunately includes, you know, uh, experiences of family, experiences of friends. Um, and as an artist that I'm really, as an actor, I'm really keenly interested in the sort of diving as deeply as I can, um, into the, into the worlds of, of the characters I play. Uh, the research that I've done, uh, on PTSD is like pretty, um, stunning, like it's shocking to me. Right. And how it manifests itself, uh, is profound. Like it's really, it's an incredibly complex, um, condition. And so, you know, it's present all throughout the whole season. Like, you know, when I'm watching Mahershala and he's so brilliant, um, I see this, the, this kinds of issues that, that, that Woodard's facing. I see it inside inside Mahershala's character, inside the detective. Um, and I think Nick writes that really beautifully. There's, there's, there are these uh, kind of scary gaps and, and spaces inside these characters that he's written um, that allow the sort of complex experience, the dislocation, the, um, the trauma, uh, to sort of be experienced within, within the flow of dialogue, within the flow of action. Uh, as we know, uh, you know, with Woodard, uh, his isolation within the community, his isolation from his own family sort of drives him further and further towards, I guess we'll call it a breaking point. Um, and of course, the violence um, that exists, I think, throughout the whole season, there's, there's a thread of it. Um, when it explodes, um, as, as everyone will see, uh, it's not surprising, you know, those, those spaces in the writing, those spaces in the character's journey, you know, we sort of, it was like, it was almost like landmines and we had this 
sense of foreboding, like what is going to happen with these men. And I actually don't know what happens beyond uh, the arc of my character. Uh, so I'm actually with you, rest of the audience. Like, I do not know what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know anything. Uh, actually, I read your article and I've been reading all the articles and I'm just trying to sleuth it out for myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think PTSD um, and playing soldiers is, is an incredible honor. Um, and I hope, I hope that that work, uh, the sort of bigger that I try to bring uh, to those performances, um, honor, honor that complex experience. There's some extremes in this season of, of the violence that you talked about. Um, but I'm wondering, there's, you know, there's this thing with Woodard where we watch him get pushed around and there's this thing inside of him where he will, he is just not going to take that. And I'm wondering if that um, pushback is at all cathartic for you personally to play that sort of that strain that Woodard has of, of like, no, you are not allowed to put me in this box and to push me around. It was gratifying. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, I will say, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't mean to harp on it, but I, I think it was really interesting when we, when we think back to, you know, last weekend, um, there was a distance between the groups that were, you know, um, in conflict. And interestingly, it was when, um, when an elderly gentleman, you know, when this elder appeared that the, the physical space was broken down in the, in the interaction that followed. And I think to myself, it was like, well, they weren't afraid of this older guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about Woodard's journey, um, the townspeople weren't afraid of him either. Right. Right. And when they pushed him too far, um, I won't call it a uh, resurgent, uh, but it, it felt, it felt important that he uh, make a stand and, and that, that resistance, that force of will, um, the violence that explodes from him uh, was, was strangely cathartic. Yeah. Uh, I'll admit that. I can imagine. Absolutely. And then I, you know, I wanted to ask you and thank Thank you again so much for your time. I'm really loving talking to you. Um, did you have any either personal inspirations or fictional inspirations for the character of Woodard, either that you talked to Nick about or, or you just came to on your own? Ah, where did Woodard come from? Yeah. Um, I think he came from a lot of different places. Uh, I directed a, a I, I run a theater company in, in Toronto called Signal Theater. And we presented a piece called uh, A Soldier's Tale a number of years ago. Um, at the National Arts Center in Canada. And uh, we were, there were, it was all about soldiers and it was all about the aftermath of war and how it plays on soldiers and, and, their, and their families. And uh, for me, the thing that allowed me to sort of crack Woodard open um, was this sense of loss of family. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, he said, you have kids? And he's like, yeah, I've got kids. You know, like, so I know what this experience is like. And, and I have two beautiful daughters. And the thought of losing my family um, allowed me just, you know, as a father, as a husband, uh, uh, to sort of drop into this, I guess, place 
um, a place of like it's emotionally devastating, right? To to lose someone. So I feel that uh, that's that's sort of how I got inside of him. This sense of grief, this this grief that sort of permeates his entire life. Um, to me, one of the saddest things he said. Uh, uh, I think Hayes asks him, do you, "Do you have a family?" And he was surprised that that the question came up. And Witter says, "I miss being someone that way." Yeah. So in a way, he's grieving the loss of who he was as a as a human being, as a as a father, as a husband. He goes, "I miss being a person that way." That that broke my heart when I read it. So that's. I think that's where it came from. Yeah, for us, um, you know, we were discussing this last episode, episode three, I think it is, um, where Woodard has this encounter with the towns, the, the men of the town, and he said, you know, they, he says, I got kids, and someone says, no, you don't. And we were just like, that it was the craziest thing for me to hear, because it's just, as you say, erasure, erasure of this man's existence. Like, how would you ever say to someone, no, you don't have kids? Like, what is, you know, I know, I know that Woodard's, you know, children don't live around him, but just that, that like repudiation of identity really bothered us when we watched it. Yeah. 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 And it was disturbing when we did the scene, you know, like those stuntmen were incredible. Those actors were incredible, but um, it was ugly. You know, we, we had to sort of find the ugliness of that moment. Yeah. Um, but afterwards, like, you know, we need, to, we need to hug it out because <laughs> I mean, we, n- nobody likes to go there. And if, and if you, and if you do, um, you're not well, uh, right. and so, um, yeah, that's, that, that, you know, some of the lines of, of his journey and of course, you know, the scene with those girls, um, on the side of the road and, um, every time I think about Woodard, I get sad. I have to, I have to admit, um, because that arc was, uh, was really, really affecting to me. You know, it's been, it's, I I think I filmed my last scene, um, you know, for the show in August and, uh, just watching it again, you know, like I'm, I'm watching these episodes for the first time with, 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 with y'all, you know, like with everybody. Um, and uh, to immerse myself in that world, uh, I'm I'm brought back immediately to all of the violence um, that we've seen across across our land. Uh, you know, Charlottesville, everywhere. You know, there's there's an ugliness um, that's always been present. Um, the children, uh, you know, at the border. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to look far and you don't have to look hard um, to see that we have a long, long way to go. Um, and, you know, when I'm, as I watch this season and, and to me, the, the pacing is so beautiful and, and the sort of the, I love, I, I love your description of, of the show. There's collateral damage everywhere. And as we sift through it, as we have this, you know, sift through these people's lives, um, yeah, I think we see a portrait of ourselves that is um, a bit too uncomfortable. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your incredible work on the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Joanna. I, I, I love the podcast. Oh, I've been listening. Thank you for listening. And uh, <laughs> uh, Absolutely. And uh, of course, 
I can't wait to see the next episode. I know. It's, it's going to be huge. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Joanna. Take care. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. So let's hop over to 1990. Um, and we've got another like classic Wayne and Amelia interaction, uh, which you, as you say, is like Milchian. Like he comes home, he says he's on the case. He's excited about it. Amelia hurls all these like very demeaning things to him. Uh, Wayne checks in on the kids. They go upstairs to the bedroom to like continue the fight. Um, and they, you know, the fight escalates and then they have sex. Um, the, the line reading that stood out the most for me is like, you know, stop demeaning me, stop demeaning me, or, and she's like, or what? He goes, or I'll cry. Stop shit talking me. Yeah. And she's like, or what? He's like, I'm, yeah, I'm going to cry. Or I'm going to cry. Kind of, and then he does. Yeah. It's such an interestingly performed scene. I think for really? Jogo, but like really, but Ali is really doing something. And it, you know, the character is written in such a way. It's, it's, he, he never quite reacts to things the way you expect him to. Yeah. Um, and I think that, it's really nice to see a character like this who is undoubtedly haunted, if not, I mean, certainly more by war, who is haunted and hates the stuff he has to see at work, um, who is a drinker, you know, to some extent, not, not, not a full blown alcoholic, but like, you know, th- th- these are tropes we've seen before. And, and, and yet he has these bursts of warmth and real humanity and vulnerability that, um, and, and, and not just vulnerability, all, you know, someone haunted by war is pretty vulnerable, but, but stated vulnerability. He's, he's, he can say it, you know? Um, I, and I, so I appreciate as, as much as I appreciate the friendship, the genuine friendship between Roland and, and Wayne, I really appreciate the way that, especially in this scene, Wayne is drawn so fully. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also this part that, um, reminds me of, you know, something that Woodard said in an earlier episode where Wayne says, uh, like, I don't know what to do. I don't, like, I don't know what you want me to do. I'll do whatever you want. And he says, uh, just give me the more order. Give me the order, Major, is what he says to her. And it's this idea that, like, soldiers don't know how to stop being soldiers once they leave the war. Right. And like, uh, Woodard says something similar about like, I, you know, I miss being a person like that. Like that's sort of him talking about before the war, but this idea of like, what do you do with a soldier who is trained to take orders and then has to like steer their own ship later. And so he's like, just boss me around and I'll do whatever I will. I'll do it. Like, I just, I really liked that, that little thing thrown in there so uh they have sex i i enjoy that she keeps this like amazing full-length 90s denim dress on the whole time yeah shirt dress uh is a is a beautiful shirt dress uh and the other thing i want to mention is like carmen carmen and jogo does an amazing a lot of people in the show do amazing jobs with the accents she's 
almost entirely amazing, but it's always fun when like an actor just slightly slips up. She says vicissitudes in a way that sounds oh, yeah. very well, British. In her defense, that word's fucking impossible to say <laughs> normally by anybody. It's true. Uh, but she, you know, she's, she's British. So like, you know, she says this thing and that, I mean, it's so cutting. She says vicissitudes and then he like barely has time to register his blank expression before she says, look it up. Like it's just so shitty. Like it's, it's a real, and it, but, but like it is, Here's, I know exactly your button. I'm going to push it right now. Here we go. So, um, and then we get, you know, there's not much more to the nineties plotline. We get, um, uh, the reopening of the task force. We get a, like a whole little avalanche of clues from the 90, 1990s reopening the task force in terms of like Lucy's OD, uh, that Dan, the cousin Dan is still a person of interest and nobody knows where he is. Um, that they, they were upset sort of with how the eighties, the eighties case sort of ended suddenly in a way where they didn't feel like they got to complete their investigation. And Hayes feels that more than West. Um, and I but should we say, don't yet know what that means, right? We haven't, we don't. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we should say really quickly that, um, the attorney general Kent comes in and, and they basically like, tell Weston Hayes that the purpose of reopening the case is to vindicate their previous conclusion, not to find the new killer. And like, you're going to play ball with that, right? And, and basically like holding his threat over Hayes or this promise of like, Hey, maybe if you play ball, you can get back on major crimes. And when they leave, uh, you know, uh, Wayne says, we're not going to do any of that shit. Right. And Wes says, I hadn't planned on it in his like convenient, like convivial buddy way, but then also gets this interesting look on his face because we know he's more inclined to play ball than Hayes is. So that will be a question of, of who will, who will be falling in line with what the attorney general wants what what the real interest is in reopening the case we know that wayne wants to find out what actually happened that's his primary interest so uh there we go and then you know the last thing i'll say about that whole like reopening of the case is that uh, you know wayne wayne's like let's not say that julie's alive yet just in case like whoever wanted her dead in 1980 maybe would still want her dead so let's just keep that information to keep her safe um the detectives go to visit the Salisaw cops and we find out Wayne finds out that Amelia called him her ex-husband. He looks very unhappy about that. And, uh, and then Wayne looks at CCTV for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And this is where Richard and I admit that like the screeners that we got had no footage on that CCTV mm-hmm. until the very end. When you see a girl, a, a very nineties looking girl, in my opinion, look up at the camera and Wayne is like, uh, that would be Julie if Julie yeah. is indeed there. So. There we go. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, that's, it's, it's like the state of the marriage right now and the state of the case in the nineties. And that's basically what we get from the nineties, right? Yeah. All right. And then we get the 2015s, which is like super interesting. So I'll write up from the top of the 2015s. I'm going to ask you, Richard, do you think Henry is having sex with Eliza? Because that, uh, um, fully. it's definitely what Wayne thinks. Yeah. And I like the way that they're kind of subtle about it. And I'm like, what, what, what could that mean? Like, what, what are there implications for the show or for the story? Or is it just kind of like a, a, a funny, interesting other little side mystery detail? Um, but I, I like the way he's like, if you happen to see him, you know, and stuff yeah, like that. And, and the like, two you, wine glasses. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. So I think that's definitely happening. Um, yeah. And something I didn't realize until after we recorded last week's episode is that, 
Uh, anytime I say Henry and Eliza, it's like, it's a little My Fair Lady thing kicks up for me. So I just wanted to stay on brand and. Do you want to do the rest of the episode in a Cockney accent? Um, Chim, oh, I'd be Chim, Chiru. Uh, so yeah. So, so that's the thing about, I also don't know that we knew that Henry is a cop. Did I miss that in one of the first three episodes? Oh. I don't remember if we knew that beforehand, actually. I think we didn't. Um, and, and if we, if he, I mean, we know that he is now. And there's an idea that like, you know, Wayne is like, you obviously have some investigators working on this, like, case. You've got information is what he says to Eliza. You've got information that I need. I want that info. And she's like, are you working this case? He's like, no, no, no. But like, yeah, he definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, I don't think this is the case, but the question is, um, is Henry working the case for Eliza? Like, is he doing any investigation and providing her with the info since she's like sleeping with a cop? whose dad originally worked on the case like i don't know it's a question um but the big the big clue that she dropped for for wayne and their interaction is that cousin dan's body was found in a drain quarry um dan lucy's cousin who went missing in 90 after resurfacing so we know they're going to find dan in 1990 we're going to see what his 1990 wig looks like and then he's going to disappear again until they drain a quarry in south missouri and find him his body there. So, and, and presumably his wig. Yes. Hopefully his wig will also have been preserved in that quarry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she's, <laughs> Eliza says very conveniently, I can't show you all my cards right now. Um, so that because the, it's only episode four. <laughs> yeah. So that it will be parceled out for the audience. Um, and we should say that Wayne asked Henry to find Roland for him, but he hasn't seen Roland in a long time. And he says he needs his memory, uh, in order to figure out like what, what happened. Um, and then we get we get this like last scene of of Wayne in in the study, and it's another like ghost scene, very haunting. Um, he mutters some things, and I'm just gonna like recap them really quickly. He says we found the footage, learned about Julie Purcell and the Grouper Street Kids. Uh, I googled mm-hmm. that, got no hits, so we'll find out what the Grouper Street Kids are when True Detective decides to tell us. That was uh, my band uh, that I had oh. in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I it was just like. We didn't get very far, but it was sort of like Color Me Bad-esque. Um, we had fun. Oh, nice. Did you perform every song in a Cockney accent or no? Well, that was the whole thing. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. 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 Okay. Color yeah. Me Bad, but Cockney. Great. Yeah. Okay. Group of Street. Color Me Bad. Richard Lawson and the Group of Street Kids. Uh, yeah. Julie Purcell on the drums. And then uh, and then what, what we find out in this uh, little monologue he has is that he's talking to Becca. He keeps saying, like, your mom and I lost you yeah. to Walmart and stuff like that. So he's talking to yeah. his daughter. Um, and then eerily, the ghosts of these, like, Vietnam fighters come, like, sort of crowding into the room. Uh, he Which says, is a very theater moment. I mean, like, you yes. could see, I yeah. could see that being a little bit more effective on stage, perhaps. But it was nonetheless effective because it's the show getting real magical realism. I think the heads down, like, the, the hats and the heads down, mm-hmm. um, was was yeah pretty effective but um he says we found the brown car who was it so we know in 19 at some point they will find that like nice brown car that we know is a clue but they yeah. don't but he still doesn't know whose it was either he's forgotten or they never found out um and then he says i felt like maybe i made you all sick like i poisoned you this seems like he's talking about his family there um maybe i decided i didn't want to stay alive without your mother this is the suicidal thoughts that you mentioned um and then we should mention that like among the vietnam fighters presu- i'm presuming these are the people that uh he killed 
in the war. And among them, uh, pointedly is a white guy in what looks to me very much like 90s, like a 90s suit, mm-hmm. a 90s tie, a 90s suit with his head down with the rest of like the Vietnamese fighters. And he, um, and like, it could just be people he saw die. I don't know. I mean, mm, I kind yeah. of assumed it was killed, but there were other troops there that didn't look like Viet Cong troops. And I don't know. Like maybe they were ARVN. I don't know if the, he was would have oh, killed that's, them. That's true. There's like there's guys with um you know helmets on and stuff like that, not hats. Right. That's true. Um yeah, so maybe not his kills. Maybe people he saw die. But um you know these are ghosts that haunt him of of deaths, dead people. Um and he says I need to tell Roland about O'Brien. So that's that's cousin Dan. I need to talk to Roland. Um and then I really like the part where he like just holds out his finger and wags it at the like murmuring dead people to quiet them. Yeah. And then he's like looking out the window, he sees a car on the street that like this this seems like a very paranoid sort of like is someone watching me kind of thing. He's talking to his tape recorder about what the model of the car is and then he turns to the ghost he's like, do they even make Mercury's anymore? Which is like yeah. this like weird funny part of this really like haunting moment uh and that's the end of the 2015 yeah. that's not the where the thing, episode ends but that's where the finger wag could almost kind of evoke the thing across the table with with amelia oh. which is like do you want our brush fingers you know yeah it feels nice and then another thing about the 2015 thing and then we can move on is he says to eliza that the thing that happened in 1990 haunts him the most yeah Right. And I, so we don't really know where that's all going. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I feel like we're probably getting to a point. We're now halfway through the season where the 1980 plot line has, is maybe reaching its end. It seems I, close. I, I, like we're opening the 1990 case and we're exactly, maybe closing exactly. the 1980 case. Yeah. Right. So that's that, that, you know, and, and that's a kind of fun idea to think of it in terms of waves. Like the first wave is 1980 heavy, then maybe 1990 heavy and then 2015 heavy possibly. Yeah. Um, so that is the episode. We're going to talk really quickly about like one fun theory thing that's kicked up before we get to that spoiler section. So this is something that like, I don't know if I'll be able to explain in podcast form. I'm used to like writing about these theories more than talking about them. So we'll see if I am able to do this without like links to show you guys. But, um, you know, Nick Pizzolatto has been posting some true detective stuff on his Instagram. So if you're interested in like some of his thoughts about the episodes and stuff like that, um, in addition to some of the inside ep- the episode interviews he does for HBO, this is a good source. And he posted this photo of Rachel McAdams in season two, the much maligned season two. And he says, one day I'll admit the story of season two was about four people gradually realizing they're already dead. And one of them makes it back to life. The black rose is the bardo. And then he said, I said too much. This is his caption on a photo of Rachel McAdams on his Instagram. You can go find it if you want to. Um, the Bardo is the name of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and if you want to read more about this, there is a uh, very long and great like Reddit theory from season two where someone was like, season two of True Detective is the Tibetan book of the dead and that Reddit commenter, I was sort of digging through all of this and that Reddit commenter put that link underneath uh, Nick Pizzolatto's Instagram post. Like I wrote about this when you made season two, basically and Nick Pizzolatto faved it. So like, you know, it's uh, I feel like this is, this is an, it's an interesting thing worth reading. So you might want to read that whole uh, Reddit thread. If you've got the time and you're interested, um, the title of it is true detective season two in the Eastern book of the dead. The poster is honest underscore Richard. That's Richard Lawson's Reddit poster name, by the way, obviously, yep, um, obviously 
So basically this idea, I mean, it's kind of complicated to dive too much into, but I think it might be relevant to season three, especially what we're seeing with um, Wayne and the ghosts. And I'll just say really quickly that this idea of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is that like when you die, there's a whole cycle that you go through um, where you like you die, which is the bardo, the moment of death. Um and then there's the bardo, which is the experiencing of reality, which ex- which features experience of visions or various Buddha forms or the nearest approximations of which one is capable. And then there's the bardo of rebirth, which features karmically impelled hallucinations, which eventually result in rebirth. Uh, uh, you know, typically sexy, actually, apparently. Uh, this is me paraphrasing the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead Wikipedia page. Anyway, um, this idea, I don't think we're talking about literal death and rebirth necessarily. Um, but one thing to think about is if you've ever seen the film Jacob's Ladder starring Tim Robbins, um, that is a book that is very much about, about the Tibetan East, um, the book of the dead, which is Tim Robbins character goes through this whole thing in the film and spoiler alert for Jacob's Ladder, which came out like in the early nineties or late eighties. Uh, it turns out that he actually died in Vietnam and everything that he experiences in that film is his like, processing that information um the after his road to the afterlife is this mass hallucination of his post-vietnam experience i don't think it's coincidence that like the idea of being a vietnam vet haunted by the people that you may have killed or may have seen die in vietnam is part of this episode and this is a theme that is of such great interest to Nick Pizzolatto. So perhaps he's doing this again, this idea of like time being a flat circle that we learned in season one, this idea of like three phases in this season of like 1990, 1980, 2015, this idea that we've already talked about on this podcast about liminal spaces, about people talking about, um, feeling like, you know, uh, you're asleep, but you can't wake up or like, have you ever been in a place where like you wanted to leave, but you couldn't at the same time. And this idea that Richard pointed out this like trio of people in this episode who talk about wanting to die. So just like, just put this in your mind of this idea of not like literal death and rebirth, but maybe this idea of psychic death and rebirth. Like maybe Wayne is trying to come bring himself back to life. Uh, by solving this cathartic solving of this case, this revisiting of old ghosts is a way for him to either like accept his death or bring himself back to life in some way. I don't know. That's, that's my best attempt at doing like pot Reddit theory on podcasts. So, uh, there you go. Yeah. Go, you know, don't, don't take Joanna's word for it. Go read a book. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. It's in a book. Look it up. It's in a book of, of reading rainbow. All right. So that is, uh, this is, this is, uh, the end of our spoiler free discussion. Um, we are going to figure out what sound we're going to play to, I don't um, know. signify a spoiler. I mean, I, I can't, the licensing for, for my, the Gruber Street Kids band is so tied up in oh, legal stuff. So we can't use one bad. of those. I'd love to. I'd love for you guys to hear it. Um, well, to, to like we'll honor the hog heat of sharp objects, shouldn't it be like something about the chicken line? Oh, <laughs> there you go. Chickens. Yeah. <laughs> Chickens and some sort of music. We'll figure it out. Dave, Chickens our editor. Chickens and Mamie Gummer saying, um, everything you touch turns to shit. Great. Great. All right. So that is going to lead us in. Prepare for the chicken sound. And then what follows here after that is enter at your own risk.
Okay, if you're here, you definitely your family. Need to- <laughs> Olive Garden. Um, so uh, this episode brought to you by Olive Garden. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this. Oh, I wish. <laughs> this uh, this section is where we're going to talk about a very compelling theory that involves a behind the scenes photo that HBO themselves put out. But you know, we just want to make sure that you feel like you want to know about this behind the scenes photo, and you you can Google this if you like. We're only going to be able to describe it to you, but basically, the the behind the scenes photo is of an actress in a long, like, long white dress, looks like a little old-fashioned, a little Quakery, sitting in the cave where they found Will's body, and it's like a scene, like, where they're setting up a shot. This actress is, like, waiting to be shot, basically, and you see the crew around her. Um, that same actress is seen in a photo in episode three in the background as Roland is walking around the Hoyt Foods uh, office, uh, and so she's there in the same dress, with like a creepy, like slightly Jean Bonnet looking little like blonde girl on her lap. Um, so we, we can reasonably conclude that that photo behind Roland in the Hoyt Foods office is, um, the daughter of Mr. Hoyt. I forget. I don't know if we know his first name, who we learned in episode three that the reason that this Ozark family out, children's outreach charity exists, um, is because Hoyt's granddaughter went missing. So presumably the little girl in this photo who's sitting on her mom's lap, uh, you know, is the girl in question who went missing. So the theory that people put together by putting together that photo and the behind the scenes cave shot is that the true culprit here is Hoyt's daughter who took Julie, um, to replace her own daughter who went missing. Uh, and we get some info in this, you know, like this, this mention of like maybe the, you know, the, the white woman that we've seen around is her, this idea that there's like a car that looks too nice to be of the neighborhood, this brown sedan that looks too nice. Um, you know, a, a, a Hoyt heiress might be, might be driven around in a too nice brown car. Um, this idea of a, of a black man helping her with a scar, like we get, info in this episode about like the chicken line being a source for injury and and uh wayne even says in this episode like let's cross-reference workplace injuries with the list we have from hoyt food so like wayne in theory is on the right track here um and this idea of this aunt this mysterious aunt who is you know uh plying will and julie with with toys in the woods um may have wanted julie we find out in this episode episode four that like uh wayne says something about like i have a feeling it's all about the girl and maybe will died by accident like trying to which amelia says do you think it could be an accident which made me think like was that amelia being like Right. Kind of confessing in a way, being like, I didn't mean to do it. Right. But like, but, uh, but that, I don't know, this photo thing, like, that sounds pretty. It's hard to figure out another reason why Hoyt's daughter would be in that cave for a shot. Other than the fact that we should say this episode proves that we're going to get like probably more and more hallucinations. So you never know what hallucinations we're going to get. But that being said, like, why would, if, if Wayne is hallucinating something, why would it be Hoyt's daughter in the cave? Unless she was the murderer. And so. also, if a Hoyt executive knocked up Lucy, maybe it's not only the daughter's 
stolen daughter. It's her sister. Right. Exactly. Like, or, or yeah, it could be. So maybe they feel a sense of ownership over her sister, daughter, these low low lights, not raising this kid. Well, children should laugh. Don't you think children should laugh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's actually the first single of the Grouper's Kids. Oh, is it spelled S H U D like it is in the ransom note? Uh, yeah, we were kind of dumb and just didn't know it, but yeah, it's Ch- a great song. <laughs> Children should laugh, mate. Um, hello. <laughs> hello. Way to go straight, kids. <laughs> All right. So that is, that is it. That's, that's what we think is probably the most compelling theory right now. It feels a little like not very sportsman like to get it from a behind the scenes photo that Reddit dug up, but we don't want to like pretend we don't know about it. So but they did release it, right? HBO did put it out in the a- world. HBO put it out there. So that was okay. their so, perhaps dumb mistake. I don't know. Who knows? It's not some telephoto lens thing. It's, no, yeah. a, a drone did not take this photo. <laughs> so the only know. other theory is that maybe they were doing a cast photo at the end of with everyone and they decided morbidly to do it in the cave. Everyone crowd up in the devil's den. Here mm-hmm. we go. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, posing Will and a sort of weekend at Bernie's thing. All right. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Um, let us tell people where they can find our work. Uh, my work uh, is at VF.com and at Rylaws. And until next week, I'm going to be trying to dig up some Grouper Street Kids cassettes because I know I have them and I really want you people to hear them. <laughs> uh, Joanna, where are you going to be? Uh, I will be at VanityFair.com or you can find me I think I already said this before. I'm going to say it again. All the chicken line. <laughs> um, all right. And this edit, uh, this episode was edited and produced by the great Dave Gonzalez. And we will see you next week. Cheerio. Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? Can I tell you a secret? That you man killed. What happened? We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.